everybody, this is Sam, that girl with the curls, bringing you the next in a long series of amazing episodes, because I can't imagine calling them any less, because they all seem to work out really well, and if I had any, like, natural uh, wood products here, I would knock on that, but uh, don't have it, but relying on the fact that every person I've gotten on this show has been really fantastic to talk to. Um including a, a, an upcoming one, which was just really fun that I recently recorded. But this one, this episode, uh, episode 91, is uh, myself and my friend James, or Roman on the Rocks, some of you might know him as, uh, talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Um, this is probably, uh, in terms of the Marvel franchises, and we, we kind of get to that towards the end of the conversation, but this is one of the franchises in the MCU that I'm probably the most excited about and uh, love the most probably on par with the Captain America movies because they have this, you know, they just kind of have their own voice and their own uh, way of, do of doing things that I appreciate and can't thank uh, James Gunn enough for. So yeah, so James and I basically geek out over Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. We do talk about the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, uh, the MCU. Um, probably, I think we touched on the DC universe of the movies as well, because how can you not at this point? Um, there's just so much to compare. Uh, and then also, spoiler alert for not only the entirety of Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, volumes 1 and 2, but also for Alien Covenant, oddly enough. Uh, James decided he wanted to, well, like, not he decided, but I don't care about spoilers and wasn't really planning on seeing the movie anyway. So he basically told me all the twists and turns, so I guess in the, probably like a skip ahead, the first 10 minutes, maybe-ish, eh, uh, if you don't want to be spoiled for Alien Covenant, so just putting that out there. Um, unless you've skipped this intro and then you'll just be pleasantly surprised, I guess. But, uh, you won't be surprised at how, uh, awesome Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is, nor will you be surprised by James and mine, uh, hour and a half long gush session. So, there you go. Please do enjoy episode 91 of That Girl with the Curls, all about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. <laughs> Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Yay. On <laughs> the new version of Skype, because God knows we need to make it more confusing. Of course. Well, I had a I had a problem with it because um, what I have uh, Skype for Business it was also downloaded on my computer, but only works at certain times or with certain settings, so. <laughs> I don't know. I had to get rid of it because it just kept popping up no matter what I did. And I was like, how can I get rid of you? Right? <laughs> Turn so convenient. I know. It, well, and it turns out it was like it was labeled as something else in my computer, which I didn't do. So the program itself did something and computers are learning things without me, James. <laughs> right? Technology this is a sin. Kind of yeah, exactly. This is how we get to the Terminator. And the, the good ones, not the not the shitty ones. <laughs> uh, I know, like, 
like we just watched like me and Chris just went and watched the new Alien Covenant movie. Oh. I'm so disappointed. Like, I was just not happy with it at all. all. See, yeah, after Prometheus, I was like, yeah, no, I'm I'm good. I don't need to see any more. That's, that's, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, so, so the big, the big discovery with this one, if if you don't mind me telling you. No, go ahead. Uh, Spoiler alert for those listening. (laughs) Right, so David, Mm. the, the, the android from, from Prometheus. Yes. Apparently, ten years ago. When Prometheus happened, like when him and the lady made their big, big escape, she repaired him, mm-hmm. in which he returned her kindness with experimenting on her to perfect the virus and its results when they like turned into the xenomorphs and stuff. Uh-huh. And so his whole premise is like he's been working to try to create the perfect creature that one of these are like he's basically playing god oh. and so humanity that arrives these humans that arrive there are basically his guinea pigs <laughs> and and so ultimately he is responsible for what eventually became the modern xenomorph and i was like that really that's it <laughs> like just some crazy fucking ai who instead of making terminators effectively made organic terminators mm-hmm. that fucking want to murder everything living that's cool I okay. I just don't understand how the xenomorph becomes like the 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 perfect specimen, or is it just that they eventually kill him anyway, and then that's that's just the end. They don't even kill David. Like like they recognize him, so to speak, in some weird way, and they just attack everything else. (sighs) So basically, they just convoluted the whole alien mythology, or whatever the hell it it fucking is. Can we have just said that the Predators made them? <laughs> I was like, damn it, Ridley Scott, what are you doing? I, like, ugh, I hate this idea of, like, these directors that are responsible for, like, these huge franchises. And, yeah, granted, Cameron took over and, and made Aliens, you know, the the big smashy-smashy, blow-it-up kind of stuff. But it was still cool, you know? It was still right. cool and interesting and kind of, and, you know, and frightening and, and everything for, for what it was. But it's like this whole... We need to justify the existence of the xenomorph. Is just kind of like no, you you don't. It doesn't need to be like that. It's like stop yeah. it. I don't know about that guy. Man, they're just and they just double down on it too. They're just like you know what you know what people really didn't like about Prometheus. Let's just keep going with that because people secretly probably still liked it. You know, of course. Of course, like they just didn't—they just didn't want to admit it. No, like, of course. That's—it's it's like the DC uh, movie universe where they're like, you know how it totally made a lot of money, but no one seems to genuinely like really like it except for this very small group of people, right? <laughs> Let's so, just I mean, double down. That we're talking about a Marvel movie today. Mm. I spoke with a friend of mine today who said something that it made my brain want to explode a little bit because I was like, wait, are you sure you're talking? about the Marvel franchise. <laughs> oh, he, goes, he goes, like, this is somebody I haven't connected with in years. Like, so we finally just reconnected. And he was just like, when we got to talking about it, he goes, yeah, I'm not really a big fan of the Marvel movies. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, okay, like, is there any, like, particular reason? He was just like, I, like, they just, I don't know, they feel too emo. And I was like, wait, <laughs> the Marvel movies feel too emo? He's like, I mean, I've always been kind of a DC fan. And I was like, are, are you sure you're not confusing the two properties right now? Because yeah. DC movies don't have color. Like, if anything, 
they're they're emo just in what they look like. Mm-hmm. Like not even not even plat. Like, like we'll, we'll just, we won't even talk about plot supposition. We'll just talk about visually. Yeah, it's kind of emo. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, I was like, I don't have time to get into this with you right now. Well, it's like when, when that picture of Amber Heard kind of went out from Aquaman, and it's just like how colorful it is. That that got everyone going like, oh my god, look, they've infused color into the DC universe. It's like, yeah, and that, and that's how big of a deal it is, is that it's so saturated, or desaturated, actually, uh, in the DC movies right now, that any, like, hint of color, like, even in the Wonder Woman movie, the fact that there was a gorgeous kind of blue sky in those trailers for Wonder Woman, right. you're just like, oh my god, is this gonna actually have some color to it? And, I mean... It's sad when the first thing people notice is just color. Mm. They don't even care about anything else. Like, they're just like, it's pretty. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's actually visually engaging, which kind of leads us into the movie that we are talking about today, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Ah! Actually, before we get into that, um, because it is a very colorful movie and that's a big, I think that's also a big reason why it does succeed on some level, but not entirely. But we've never, I don't think we've really talked about the first one on this show in particular. So, James, I will ask you, uh, before we get into Volume 2, just initially, like, what was... What was your, uh, what did you think of, you know, the first movie, like, before and after? Like, you know, what was your journey with Guardians of the Galaxy? Yeah, so, um, much like many of the Marvel properties, like, I, I've never, I've never followed the comics, so mm-hmm. I didn't really know much about the background story at all with Guardians, so this was going into a movie totally fresh, like, no, no previous opinions on, on anything at all about it. Um, just what I knew of the current, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe and kind of what they've been doing. Um, knowing like James Gunn was directing this was exciting because I mean he's done some really good stuff, um, you know, directorially and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was excited about it. So the first Guardians really takes us on this adventure where uh, I mean I kind of like through through most of it I was like. I feel like this is what would happen if me and my friends had spaceships and were trying to save a universe. Like, mm-hmm. this this would be it. Um, it's this very, like, all the characters are, are saturated in their own, like, sarcastic, self-protected um, style of, of humor and everything. Uh, much like, and I guess that's where a lot of uh, relation between, like, me and these characters has always been, is, like, a typical self-defense mechanism for a lot of us is like we cover our feelings in sarcasm. So we say things very sarcastically, ha ha, but we're slightly serious. Ha ha. Um, kind of thing. <laughs> and these characters are all like that. Like they're all damaged property in mm-hmm. so many ways. Um, and it just resonated with me. I was like, they're, they're broken people. I'm a broken person. They cover their sadness and sarcasm. Yay. My people. Um, <laughs> So the first movie is fantastic in that essence of getting to meet this hodgepodge of characters. Like, none of the, like, the only commonality they really have at the end of the day is that they are damaged individuals, Mm -hmm. and that's what brings them together. Uh, But they all have their own motivations. You know, you have Star-Lord who um, is trying to be Star-Lord. Yeah. That's his whole thing. It's like, (laughs) I'm trying to set a name for myself in the galaxy and be something. Um you know, because he doesn't have a home anymore, particularly not one he identifies with. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Drax who uh, lost his wife and child, and 
I think child. Yeah, his um, daughter. Children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, he's just a. Uh, but he's he's kind of his people don't pick up sarcasm and, and humor like they don't pick up subtleties like that. So he's just very like black and white and obvious and he doesn't get it sometimes but he himself is like this damaged person you have um the other one not nebula uh gamora gamora there we go (laughs) um so you know you have gamora who who has like this very broken family relationship you know she has this guy who kidnapped her kind of thing oh she's a daughter of thanos yeah like it's just really messed up and you know, she has, like, a sister figure to kind of relate to, but they have a very um, Con- juxtaposed relationship. It's like, a it's bit not- contentious, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you, you have uh, Rocket, who is an experiment. Like, mm-hmm. he, he was experimented on, so he doesn't really have belonging in any particular place, and it eventually becomes obvious. Like, that's something that's very real for him, and it's thing that it strikes an emotional chord. Um, when people point it out very mm-hmm. obviously to him. And his one true blue friend, who's the last of his kind, and that's Groot. Mm. Um, and Groot is just an amazing character that, um, I mean, a lot of people give Vin Diesel shit for being Vin Diesel. Um, <laughs> like, all he's good at is, like, making Fast and the Furious movies. And I was like, well, I mean, yeah. But at the same time, like, he did a fantastic job with Groot mm-hmm. in the fact that the character only ever says I am Groot. Yeah. That's it. And he managed to convey multiple emotions um, as well as um, multiple uh, conversations that were very poignant through just three words. Yeah. Um, like, so when people are like, he has no depth as an actor, I'm like, bullshit, you should watch Guardians of the Galaxy. There's a lot of depth there. Well, it's like, um, it's not only that, it's like, Groot is also kind of uh, akin to his uh, Iron Giant uh, voiceover acting, right. because he says very little in that one, and the biggest line that he has, you know, the Superman, is the is the big tearjerker, you know? So, <laughs> Vin Diesel has actually made a very lucrative career off of saying very little and still getting across an emotional point. Right. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's like I said, it's a movie that resonates with me simply because of, again, broken people that come together for a common cause mm-hmm. and have a relatability amongst each other. And and ultimately, in the end, like, they're, they're more than just friends. Like, and that's very clear. It's very obvious that they're more than just friends together, that they are kind of this small, broken family mm-hmm. uh, that work really well together. Yeah. No, it's it's true, and and for me, like the, because like you, I I don't I I'm not a big Marvel reader. I mean, at this point, I'm probably not that big of a DC reader anymore, but that's just because of mo- monetary reasons. But uh, I just know more about the DC universe than I do the Marvel universe, and so the Marvel movies are always kind of a pleasant, like jaunty little ride into another universe. Because it's like, hey, I don't know anything about this. I have no hangups on what's happening. Um, and the Guardians of the Galaxy, I think, in terms of when it was announced as a movie, at the time, a lot of people, unless you were, like, really into comic books or, like, into, like, a hardcore section of that, even, like, you know, big comic book readers weren't huge, you know, hugely knowledgeable about the Guardians of the Galaxy, like, um, and so it, it seemed at the time a very risky thing for Marvel to do 
for them to basically throw this property out there with a bunch of characters no one's very familiar with and to to like you know drop them in the middle of this was it I think it was the second wave um, of their movies that is where Guardians uh, landed. And it was that first trailer when they used a Hooked on the Feeling, Hooked on the Feeling um, by Blue Swede. And, like, it, from that get-go, it was very clear that there was a vision. Like, you know, James Gunn has a very distinctive style, he has a very distinctive attitude, and it was reflected not only in the trailer, but in that first, um, that first uh, poster. Where it was like Guardians of the Galaxy, you're welcome. <laughs> like, right? Like there was just this sense of fun, but also this kind of like unabashed, like we don't really give a fuck if you don't like us kind of attitude. Uh, yeah. Which I respect. I respect a lot. <laughs> so, so going into it, it was just like I know nothing about it. I didn't want to know anything about it. I went in, and I'm not even kidding. From the moment the the first song hits, well, no, it's when the when the credits start going, when he's doing, uh, you know, like, come and get your love. <laughs> like, when they, when that song hits and, and Peter Quill, Star-Lord, is doing his dance around that little area, like, I was on board. I was like, that's it? I'm done? I'm good. Like, I am in this. <laughs> like, yeah. And, and for me, it was really, as much as it's the sarcasm and everything, the music was such a huge deal, too, because I grew up with all of that music as well. Like, my... My my mother was very responsible for my musical upbringing, and a lot of what James Gunn selected was mu- you know music I was familiar with. So I was like, "Yep, I'm here. I'm good. Just wherever you're gonna go, take me there." And it ended up being an actually like genuinely not only fun time, but at the end of the movie, I'm like, I actually care about a, a CGI raccoon and a tree monster, like. <laughs> Yeah. They made me care about them. This is like, yeah, we are Groot. We're all Groot. <laughs> so, so now we have volume 2, which uh extends the story of our ragtag group of broken, emotionally broken, physically broken uh band of family members and um so this one's again kind of Kind of picking up a little bit after what happened in the events of the first one, only Groot is no longer a little stick baby. He's now just called Baby Groot, and he's standing up and doing his, his little thing. But uh, the, the the general premise of this, this second movie is that uh, we, we learn who Peter's father truly is. Um, and it turns out to be Ego, the super planet. Um, or Ego the Living Planet, I think, is is how Marvel yes. always talked about him. Uh, it was, it, just as a side note, so that you have Ego in the Marvel Universe. Over in the DC Universe, you have Mogo, who is a Green Lantern, who is a whole planet. So th- those are those are two things I've always want, wanted to mash up. Like, how would Ego and Mogo go after each other? <laughs> Make it happen. <laughs> That's the crossover I want. Two planets just, like, trying to get at each other in some way. Uh, so yeah, so it turns out, uh, Ego, the, the living planet is in fact, uh, Peter's father and he saves our ragtag group after a rocket steals some batteries from the sovereign who become kind of our secondary or tertiary villains, um, in this. Uh, so they're being pursued by the sovereign. They meet up with Ego and his, um, what we kind of consider his, his pet or emotional, uh, therapist, Mantis. And they are invited over to uh, Ego's 
planet, which we don't realize is ego until kind of further in, uh, so that Peter can reconnect with his father, who turns out to be a celestial, which is why Peter was was able to hold on to the Infinity Stone at the end of the, the first movie. Because uh, he's got God blood in him, man. Uh, and so while they're over there, uh, Rocket and Groot and a newly uh, captured Nebula are facing off against the Ravagers because Yondu's having his whole, like, midlife crisis, I guess? or crisis. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he he feels uh, uh, basically abandoned by the other Ravagers because, uh, turns out, uh, Yondu was responsible for uh, trafficking children to Ego's planet because Ego needed some kids who he had fathered to see if he could spread his, um, his ego, basically, about <laughs> the universe. <laughs> It's a it's an apropos name based on how this whole thing plays out. So Ego's been trying to seed the entire galaxy so that he's not alone. Uh, we kind of get the feeling from this movie that he's the last of the Celestials because I think in the first movie, this, the only Celestial we saw was Nowhere, which is just the entire facility made out of a Celestial. So as far as we know, Ego's like maybe the last one, other than Peter. Uh, who, who is the only one of Ego's children to actually, like, maintain that the spark or the light that, you know, indicates he is part celestial, I guess. So he needs Peter to help him do that, and uh, he kind of almost gets Peter on his side until we find out the big old kicker that as much as he loved Peter's mom, old uh, Mama Quill, he put that tumor in her brain. And that's what killed her. So it's on after that. And so then it just basically becomes a lot of, like, we need to destroy the planet. And then Yondu shows up and starts being all, like, badass, I'm your real daddy kind of thing. And then... I'm Mary Poppins, y'all! <laughs> I'm Mary Poppins, y'all! Oh, if someone doesn't put that on a shirt at some point, I don't know what this world's for. Um, but yeah, so it's a lot of... It's a lot of dealing with family issues, not just within the group, but outside as we have Gamora and Nebula are dealing with their issues in their own way, which is still super awesome. Uh, you have Peter dealing with his daddy issues, not only with Ego, but also with Yondu. Um, and then we have Yondu and Rocket strangely connecting on, on that level as well. So there's there's just a lot happening on that level. So I guess, James, what what are your initial feelings of the movie having seen it? Um, so good. Uh, like, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people, like, I, I mean, I walked out of the movie and I heard a number of people, like, walking out, kind of conversing with, like, my wife and uh, some other, you know, some other people that, like, there were, there were a fair few who were like, man, I think it was better than the first one. And I'm one of those that, I don't think it was better. Mm-hmm. I also don't think it was worse. I think yeah. it was on par. I think it's on equal footing because it tells it's the same characters, but it just tells an evolution of what we'd already seen kind of growing in the first movie. Mm-hmm. And it just took a lot of the same theme and expanded on it. Yeah. Um, and I was very happy with that. Um, because for me, I was just like, I see why when this movie tested with test audiences as a 100, mm-hmm. why that audience clearly was like, don't change anything. It's perfect. Just the way it is. Like nothing needs change. Mm-hmm. Um, because it very much felt that way. Um, I mean, for me, the movie resonated in a lot of ways. Because as I've been telling people, especially like the very simple version of what I've given people, are like, what did you think, but don't spoil it. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, 
Um, That's difficult. <laughs> it's about family. Mm-hmm. It's about it's a story about how family isn't necessarily defined by the blood from which you come from, but more that family are the people you choose mm-hmm. to be close to you in your life and acknowledge with that kind of familial closeness, um, which really resonates for me because that's very much my life. Like, I mean, I have a family, but it's very small. I don't connect with like, you know, a lot of my extended family or anything. And so a lot of what I consider my family are definitely <laughs> like my friends, like, you know, um, you know, people such as yourself, mm-hmm. uh, our friends, Tiff, Carlos, like these are all people that are family to me. Like I would, I would do just about anything for, Duh. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, and so the, the movie definitely resonates on that level very well in terms of, um, you get to see that, that change, you know, when, so when Peter meets his father, there's a lot of reluctance and there's a lot of um, suspicion initially where he's just like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. This just seems, it seems a little too perfect that, you know, all of this is going on. Suddenly this guy shows up and he's like, Hey, I'm your dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know about this. And then like, he kind of takes the 180 on that and like really embraces it because, you know, ego shows him some really cool things about himself that he didn't know. Mm-hmm. Talks about the fact like he loved his mother and knew his mother and, and all that kind of stuff. And so he does start to develop this closeness of like wanting to have a dad, wanting to know his dad, have this relationship. Um, in the meantime, you know, he's got, you know, uh, Gamora going, no, Peter, there's still something weird about this. Something's just not right. I can feel it. Yeah. Um, but she's, but she's the one who initially wants him to like connect with ego at first. Like she's going like, you don't know, I mean, this is an opportunity, like, you've wanted this, and blah, 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 and then I think it's one of those things where it's, like, the story then conveniently says that she's suspicious. Right. <laughs> like, towards the end, where she's like, no, I don't, I don't know, this isn't right, or whatever, and, and it has more to do with Mantis than anything else, but I, that's one of the things where I'm like, I feel like the turn here was a little too quick, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and so, like, I mean, there's the whole, and, and, and all of them, I mean, we get those additions of Mantis, who's very clearly, like, I mean, she even explains very directly, like, she was taking, taken in, like, from her people in, like, a larval state because, like, her people were threatened by something mm-hmm. and uh, was taken by ego and kind of raised by ego, so to speak. But um, she doesn't really know much of the outside world. Like, she's never been uh, subjected to much of it. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and then you have, uh, you know, as I said, you have um, Yandu, who uh, is <laughs> having his weird midlife crisis. And that was another thing that was, like, really kind of weird to me, because they didn't, like, there wasn't, like, clear explanation, like, other than, like, he's on some kind of, like, robot uh, pimp with it's, robotic hoe yeah, planet. I don't know. It's <laughs> like a brothel-like <laughs> scenario. Like, I, I, it was one of the things I was actually kind of surprised by, because I don't... I assume that this movie was PG-13 because they they were throwing around the, the, the word shit quite a bit in this one. And and then, yeah, like the first shot we have of Yondu, he's basically zipping up his pants. Yeah. Um, <laughs> After some, some lady robot ma- love making. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it, and it just kind of, it's weird and awkward in, in, in just everything through that scene because, like, he has the confrontation with the other Ravagers, and you kind of get what's going on, but, uh, you know, it, and there's just this weird moment where, like, you know, Sylvester Stallone shows up. I know. And, 
and tells him, and he's just like, "We have, we have like one rule, and it's that we don't, we don't deal with kids." And you broke that rule, and then like he's out of the band. Yeah, and I was just like, "Wait, what?" Like, I yeah. don't understand much of the background of these characters. There's it's a... all just it's kind of happening, and I'm like, "Uh." Yeah, there's a lot of like Ravager background that we weren't privy to in the first. One. I mean, we didn't know much about the Ravagers. Other, I mean, what we knew in the first one was that Peter was abducted by Yondu. Uh, and it isn't until the end of the movie that we kind of learned that it's because his dad wanted him. And, and all we know about that is that Yandu's like, yeah, he was an asshole. What we don't realize is what Yandu was actually doing, and the reason why he kept Peter was he he basically found out that Ego was uh, having Yandu traffic his his children from all the other planets he, he put his little, like, um, uh, plants on, uh, and was bringing them to him so that he could figure out if they had the spark or the light, and then if they didn't, he just basically, like, killed them drained him off of, of whatever battery power they had. Um, and so Yondu only basically saw, um, uh, found this out, and then he had to pick up Peter and then decided to keep him. Yeah. To, to save um, his life, basically. Yeah. Well, and what's great is, like, they, and, and, and they did a good job of, like, ex- of really, like, creating, again, that familial bond, because, like, there it shows, like, Peter... Like, what I loved was the direct, like, there's a direct turn in a, in, in a split second when, when Peter immediately is no longer on board with, yeah, dad, he's my dad. Yeah. And it's, it's the moment when, when Ego says, you know, when I put that tumor in her head, Ugh. it killed me. And it's such a direct turnaround that, like, no matter what was happening, this power that he had over his son was, like, really inconsequential, like... Peter's love for his mother has always been what pulled him through. It's what pulled him through at the end of the first movie when he took the in- when he grabbed the Infinity Stone, mm-hmm. um, and even now it's what pulled him through to having the motivation to defeat you know the the man that gave him life, but ultimately was never a father to him. Um, and even that realization, like his, uh, what I liked was like him telling the story. You know, when people when 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 Ego asks him, like, do you? Why did Yondu keep you? Like that's what I don't know. And he's just like, well, you know, I was I was small and skinny, and you know, I, I could fit into tight places. You know, easier for thieving. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, he says that, and then later, like you hear Yondu because Rocket asks Yondu, like, why did you why did you keep him from Ego? Why didn't you just give him to him? And he goes, well, you know, he is small and kind of scrawny, and you know, he could fit into tight places. Yeah. you know, good for thieving. And it was really interesting that, like, that was always, like, the reason in Peter's head that he was kept. Um, And Yandu has, like, a very, um, like, what I like is when he's having the flashback moment. Mm -hmm. And he has the realization, like, Yandu's been more of a father figure to him in his life. Even though he was kind of a dick about it, he was always there for Peter. Well, Um, and it's it's very much like Yandu trying to keep up appearances with the Ravagers. It's like, even the Ravagers are like... We don't know why he always had a soft spot for this kid. Like, why did he keep him in the first place? And and then you really realize that it's because Yandu not only, like, was saving Peter's life, but he also felt guilty about what he had done before. And he was trying yeah. to make it up in his own way by being as much of a father as he could show to be to Peter, uh, while still trying to maintain his, like, you know, uh, the gruff exterior of being Yandu, you know, leader of, of his group of Ravagers. Yeah. Um, well, and 
so, I mean, the movie, the, like, by the time we get to the end of the movie, I mean, it's, we, again, we see that familiar old bond. And, I mean, there's even a moment where, like, Nebula, like, sits there and tells them very directly, like, you, you, you guys, you guys aren't friends. You fight constantly. You're yeah. always at odds with each other. Like, that's, that's not friendship. And, and, you know, I, I think it's Drax is the one who's just like, you're right. We're family. Mm-hmm. And, and it is. It's just, it, it, it's, again, it's broken people who are able to have a common bond with each other just over that and being there for each other in such an interesting way. Um, and again, all the sarcasm. Like, there's not, there's, there's, what I love about the Guardians movies is there are serious moments. Mm-hmm. And it's what I like in general about most of the Marvel movies is there's serious moments, but there's so much humor. I mean, from the very beginning of this movie, there's so much humor. Um, you know, just like that first fight. Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> <So good. laughs> uh, you know, they're taking on a giant space slug of sorts, um, and it's just it's comic because you know you have. Uh, Mr. Blue Sky playing in the background. You have Baby Groot, who's very much dancing like a toddler does, mm-hmm. um, which I think is hilarious when you really think about because Vin Diesel did all the mocap for Baby Groot as well, but so not his dancing. Know. That's that's James Gunn dancing. Oh, is that James Gunn? Who yeah, did the mocap for that. James Gunn did the dancing for Baby Groot at the end of the first Guardians when he's doing the the little thing with Drax and everything. And, uh-huh. and so anytime Groot is dancing, it's James Gunn. So that whole That's sequence, funny. like, because it's, it's such a brilliant opener because it, it, it's in some ways mirrors the opening of the first one where Peter's dancing and we're getting kind of the, uh, you know, him, we're getting kind of the lay of the land as he goes for the orb in that first one. So in this one, it's, it's just like 10 times more where instead of really showing this huge CGI battle that they would most likely have to do with this giant monster. We're just getting it all from Groot's point of view. Yeah. Well, and it's so funny because even then, like, I mean, we, we get the very classic, like rocket kind of translating, you know, Groot. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's it, like, I mean, it's little things. It's, you know, that moment where there's like the weird little like rat things that we saw on the planet in the very first one in the opening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like, harassing him or whatever or he feels it's harassing him so he like whips its ass with his branches like and, and rock is like he what why why are you doing that and he's just and, and he says i have Groot. and he's just like it wasn't it wasn't making fun of you it didn't look at you weird what are you talking about <laughs> i just groups hilarious through the whole movie oh like again God. like just group being group like it's still so good and it's even almost even better as Baby Groot because he is very small and he's not, you know, strong. He's not what we saw in the first movie as far as, like, having the ability to, like, really defend himself. Uh, But he's still such, like, a crucial part um, of the entire team in so many ways Mm -hmm. Um, where, like, it's the moment, like, in the moment where, like, they're, they're caught by the Ravagers. So Yondu and Rocket are locked up and poor baby Groot is, like, just being subjected to just general horribleness. Like, these guys are picking on him and pouring booze on him and just being assholes. Well, and the thing is, like, they all think he's adorable. Like, the what I love is because, yeah, the Ravagers have had a, a, a bit of a, um, a mutiny, uh, thanks to Nebula and Taserface. Taserface! Oh, my God, so good. <laughs> oh, 
And I, I love it because Taserface, it's just, you can't even, because Rocket's whole laugh, laughing at him for that is, is justified because you can't really say Taserface without really laughing. It's like, I can't take this guy seriously, really. Um, even that sovereign lady that, that he, he contacts with the coordinates when he's like his last act of revenge before he dies, he's like, tell them the name of the person that gave them up was Taserface. <laughs> and even she's just like, <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so when they're walking away from the the, the prison with Yondu and, and Rocket, and the one dude comes up to him with with Groot in the in the cage, which is who if people don't know that's comedian Steve Agee, and uh, he's just I, I just know him from a bunch of podcasts that I listen to. Uh, but so he runs up with with Groot in the cage, little baby Groot, and he's like, "Can I throw him into the the incinerator?" He's like, "No, he's adorable." <laughs> I kind of love that the Ravagers still have this, like, it's like, no, we're not going to kill him. He's freaking old, you know, adorable. Let's put him in a costume or something. But yes, he is subjected to a lot of terrible things. Oh, yeah. Well, and you can see, like, he's very, like, torn down and not happy. And, Mm -hmm. like, and one of the best sequences of the the movie is, um, once again, like, just Groot antics where they're trying... Because at this point, Yondu's fin, which controls the arrow he has, mm-hmm. um, has been broken when Nebula shoots him. And so he needs his replacement uh, fin. And so they're trying to just get Groot to get the fin. Yeah. They describe it to him. They tell him, like, it's in a drawer. And the drawer looks like this. And they're trying to, like, be simple but specific. Yeah. Trying to make Groot <laughs> understand. And, like, and Groot's just coming back with everything other than, like, just all kinds of shit, like, Objects, the fact a that human when he finger. Oh my God. <laughs> when he brings the desk, the desk is was one that got me. And then yeah, when it's the human, when it's the finger or the toe oh, yeah, or whatever, it's just like, please tell me somewhere on this ship you just have a drawer full of human fingers. <laughs> and Yandu's like, no, not at all. And he's just like, let's just agree that we'll never speak of this ever again. <laughs> yeah, and it's like the only the only way they even really get out is because Craglin. Uh, who's Sean Gunn, James's brother, uh, who also, if you watched Gilmore Girls, he played Kurt uh, on that show for a very long time. Uh, so he he gets to have his like if he you know he's the he's the only loyal the, the only living loyal Ravager to Yondu because after after Yondu is unseated as a leader of this group of the Ravagers, they throw all the other ones out who were still loyal to him except for Kraglin because. I for some reason, <laughs> like, so he's the he's the reason that, <laughs> that Yondu and yeah. and Rocket even get out because he he figures out what they're doing. Like I I really kind of I'm curious is like how long would it have taken Groot to find the Finn and what other insane things would he have brought to them? I I just want to know what the shooting script was like. Like how many different things did they really have on? Like is are there more things in the director's cut or in the, the um, <laughs> cut scenes of Groot just bringing stuff? Like, did they just go like, let's just, as whatever things we can think of, and then we'll just cut which ones together that we think are the most hilarious. I, I genuinely want to see how many more they had of that. Right? Because, <laughs> I mean, that it, it really comes down to comedic timing on that. I mean, and that's what really, you know, moves this movie along is not only the the emotional stuff, which there's there's so much in it. I mean, on top of that, the comedic, uh, the comedic timing, because I, I know that there are some people who probably look at that and they're just like, God, it just goes on too long or it's not funny. But it's like, 
that's that's calculated. Like you have to really figure out when is it funny and when isn't it funny anymore. Right. Well, and 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 that's why I think they do. James Gunn does such a good balance with mm-hmm. this franchise because he does capitalize on so many things. Like he capitalizes obviously on like a lot of a lot of like late seventies and into the eighties like nostalgia. Oh, it's so good. Um, <laughs> so a lot of that's there. I mean, the soundtrack alone points all that out. Um, but I mean, you I, you have a character you know in in Star Lord who's proverbially like he himself is proverbially stuck in that era because mm-hmm. that's all the music he's ever had. So that's a lot of his cultural reference. He doesn't like, I can't wait to see how hilarious it is when the guardians do come to earth. Um, oh because eventually they're going to get there in the whole, like, you know, in, in the whole like war that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and I can't wait to see how blown away his mind is and like how far technology's come. So it's like twenty odd years ago when he was captured by the Ravagers. Because <laughs> this poor guy's never grown up with any of that. I mean, in the end, like they gave him a Zune, which I thought was a really interesting choice. I was like, a, a Zune? Yeah. Like really? It's so out hilarious. Of all of the MP3 technology that's out there, a Zune. You got to okay. assume that was as much for the laughs as anything, because obviously Zunes aren't really in use all that much. So right. <laughs> like, and it's. It's so sweet, though, because it hits that, that moment again, because at the end of the first one, he gets the second tape from his mom that he just never opened that gift up that she gave when he was abducted. Um, so he gets that, that cassette, and then we get the destruction of the Walkman from, by Ego, which, again, not, not only does he kill you know, his, you know, Peter's mom, but he also destroys the, like, the last thing he has of hers, um, and which just seals the deal that Peter's never going to be, you know, you know, complicit in whatever he's doing but then at the end of the movie he gets from Kraglin uh the zune that Yondu had picked up for him so it's just like oh it's just, it's just another like callback to the first one where Peter's just perpetually being gifted music from dead people <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't imagine what's gonna happen at the end of Guardians 3 <laughs> right he doesn't need to see dead people he just inherits music basically but at least he's got 300 songs and <laughs> I love that yeah. that look on his face. He's like three hundred songs, because yeah, well, yeah, it's like the proverbial like he's like an old man. He's just like, what? <laughs> That's so many. And what, um, you figure what what could the average cassette tape hold, like in terms of actual songs? I mean, twelve, maybe. Yeah, could it? I don't. I mean, it's been so long since I've actually listened to a cassette like, tape. <laughs> yeah, like twelve, maybe. Maybe if you really pushed it, like, 14. Yeah. But, but that would be if they're, like, short songs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the average song today is just not short. So. Like, I'm pretty sure, like, Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell 2 is probably, like, an eight-song cassette. Mm-hmm. Because ten-minute power ballads, let's do this. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, just given the, the, the idea of, of having 300 songs available to him, which we don't really know. I mean, the first song he listens to on it that we see is Father and Son by Cat uh, uh, Stevens. Uh, but who knows what, how many songs from what different, you know, eras of music he has on there. So I think Guardians 3 will be interesting in terms of song choice. Uh, yeah, for sure. Well, and I think, I think we'll get to see not even just Guardians 3, but we'll get to see probably something of that into the you know the the infinity war because mm-hmm. uh, i think 
chapter one of the Infinity War is supposed to happen mm. first before we get Guardians three. Yeah. Um, so again, it'll be interesting to see how the Guardians are involved, whether or not they get directly involved in the first movie, or if they have a stronger presence in the second movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really curious as to how that's going to work because there's going to be so many heroes yeah. involved. Yeah. Like, um, how do you... at this point? And and it's the guys who did um, Winter Soldier, right? They're the ones that are, or is it the? No, it's the guys who did um, Bat the Lego Movie. Aren't they're the ones that are taking over Infinity War, right? Um, maybe. Maybe I don't know. Don't don't quote me on that one. But I know it's a duo that are taking on the the Infinity Wars because this is a an Avenger style movie. But obviously, Joss Whedon is not around to do that. So, <laughs> um, actually, it was it was interesting to me how this movie had very little to do with any of the overarching. I don't think it had anything to do actually with the overarching plot of the coming infinity war it was very self-contained like it was it was big but it was still intimate like it didn't really jump around a lot which was i think this is one of the first marvel movies that doesn't have any mention of Mm. the infinity stones like as far as any of the stones individually themselves exactly doesn't talk about it at all yeah no and I, i think that was probably it was probably a very good idea that they did that you know because it's like it it gives you time to just kind of get to know these characters a lot more. I mean, for the first movie, for having what we have like five, five or six characters basically to get to know and nobody knows who they are and you have to introduce them in a way that is entertaining, but also informative. And then by the end, you have to care enough about them that when they succeed, you want to see more of their adventures, you know? So volume two is basically a continuation of their story, but it's not so much like, it has to connect to everything. It has to connect to this, or we have to set up this. Like, no, they just get to be in their own little bubble, which is yeah. is kind of great because it just gives you a chance to just know them more. Yeah, well, and I will say, like, they do make some tie-ins um, to to like the the future as far as like certain characters, things like that. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the first Marvel movies that has had like post 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 mm-hmm. post credits. It's like, <laughs> like, it's like five like, different post credits. Right? Um, and like one of them like is very subliminal because um, people are like, I don't really know why they showed that character, and it's the guy who is going to be in Ragnarok. Um, I can't remember the actor's name. He was in Jurassic Park too. Oh, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, Jeff Goldblum is in the credits. Like it's not it, it, like like the, it's when they're showing like the shots of like people dancing, mm. and it's the character that he'll play that he's playing in Ragnarok. And yes, he's dancing. People are like, "Why the hell did they show him?" And I think it's just a little teaser to be like, "Hey, Thor Ragnarok is coming up." <laughs> like if you didn't already know. Right. <laughs> like... um, so I mean, they made the tie-in there. I did. I did really enjoy the post-credit scene with like a teenage Groot. Oh my god, um, it was so good. So good, just because there was like there was the attitude of like voice inflection in it, where he's like having a real conversation with him, and he's just like. Yeah, when he comes in, he's like, oh, come on, man. Like, this is, like, is this what you're doing all day? Is this, like, you just sit here? Like, it's so boring. And he's just like, I'm Groot. He's yeah. like, oh, I'm boring. I'm boring. You know what's boring? All these roots just everywhere, and I'm tripping on them. Like, you could, you know, if you just didn't play that thing all day. He's just like, oh, I'm Groot. <laughs> like, it's so 
It's like, again, you want to talk about inflection, like how, how Vin Diesel is actually really capable of getting across something. Like, you know exactly what this conversation is. Like, just, I love it. Like, the, I am Groot. And like, what? What did you just say to me, young man? <laughs> and just like his, like, this must have been how Yondu felt. Because, yeah, Peter was a teenager when he was <laughs> with the yeah. Ravagers. Um, like, that was a beautiful little, like, tie-in. Um, so the one tie-in that they made, a lot of people weren't sure if they were actually going to jump to or not, um, is Adam. Yeah. Which they didn't name specifically, but it is it is Adam Warlock mm-hmm. that they are creating in this weird chamber. Um, and for those not in the know, Adam Warlock is a very significant figure in the Marvel Universe because um, at one point, um, I have an early comic where he came to command all of the Infinity Stones. He actually acquired the Infinity Gauntlet, and it almost tore him apart. Like, it almost destroyed his entire mind. Oh, God. Um, it gets it gets really trippy and weird. No. Um, but eventually, like, knowingly in the franchise, he actually comes to acquire one of the Infinity Stones. Mm-hmm. I can't remember which stone specifically. Uh, but it's very similar to, uh, like, he, in many ways, in, in that retrospect, is very similar to Vision, in the essence of, like, Vision controls one of the Infinity Stones. Yeah. Um, so we'll, at some point, get to see Adam Warlock, uh, which will be kind of cool. Yeah, because a lot of people thought that he was in the, the collector's uh, menagerie of, of items or whatever. Uh, a lot of people were trying to figure out what was going on with that, so this is the actual, like, okay... Now Adam Warlock is officially, like, he's coming. We know it's happening. It's like, whether or not it's in Infinity War, or maybe he just shows up in Guardians 3, like, at the very least, James Gunn has put him on the table. You know? Right. There was also the Watchers. I loved Stanley talking yes. to the, like, Uatu and the Watchers. And so, did you hear the recent rumor that was confirmed by Marvel, finally? What? So, Marvel finally confirmed a fan theory that's been going around. Um, and it came only because we saw Stan Lee talking to the Watchers and mm-hmm. like telling them about all of his adventures as you know, like a, you know, as, as a as, as a uh, a package delivery man and all oh. that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, because so he was saying like, yeah, then it was this thing or whatever. So yeah, so the fan theory is for a long time was every cameo appearance we have seen of Stan Lee in a Marvel movie has not been Stan Lee as Stan Lee. I mean, obviously, like, that's the name he goes with, but he is secretly one of the Watchers, because <sighs> the Watchers in the Marvel Universe are known for observing and recording um, things that they, they, they find in the universe. Mm-hmm. And so a fan theory was that he's actually a Watcher, and Marvel recently came out and confirmed that, yes, he, he, he either is or works for the Watchers. And so that's why... We saw him like having a conversation with them, telling them about his adventures on Earth and what he's encountered. And I was like, "That's funny shit." Oh my god! Uh, and it was such a good like the the first cameo when Rocket and Yondu and Groot are trying to get back to Ego's planet. I guess they had to make like seven hundred jumps to get to Ego's planet. <laughs> and they're just—I mean, if you want to talk about visual, uh, visually stunning movies, I mean, there's. There's a lot of movies you can talk about. This one not only is like colorful as fuck, but then just that whole like jump sequence that they're going through is just taking you through like the trippy part again of the Marvel universe. Right. 
Well, like, and there was somebody had mentioned like that, like again, and I'm sure it's like some Easter eggs that like you just really have to look for that somewhere in there, like jumping, they hit some very like specific universes mm. um, that even we have seen as far as like with uh, Doctor Strange and like some of the places like he went through when we saw his movie. Mm. Um, so again, just Marvel doing a good job, like especially James Gunn doing a good job of making like small tie-ins to the other movies here and there. But again, nothing that detracted from the main story of what this movie was meant to deliver. No, exactly. And and one of the things that I think came out recently was, it was this stupid-ass article that was talking about, like, um, you know, why are these superhero movies, like, showing so much emotion? You know? And, uh-huh. and it's just like, what? You know, maybe it's actually a good thing that there are movies, you know, that feature superheroes that children are going to see and they're also getting the sense that you know what it's okay to cry it's okay to feel something (laughs) it's like like the the whole bit with uh because mantis's power is that she's uh an empath basically like she can read people's emotions if she touches them and she can also kind of manipulate emotions if she if she has you know the the time to like touch them long enough and we see that with peter because he clearly loves gamora and that's been kind of coming through since the first one and she's like you have romantic love you know sexual love for that woman and then drax just like being drax is like she just revealed your greatest secret your deepest darkest secret you must be so embarrassed um and then she does the same to him and and at first you're kind of like because everyone kind of knows drax comes from a terrible background and so you're kind of thinking like oh shit she's gonna like hit the mother load with him, but she just gets the laughter and she just starts pointing and laughing at Peter. But then right. la- later on when Drax is just kind of looking at the, the, the fountains or the pools or whatever, and he starts talking about his daughter and his wife and everything. And then Mantis touches him and she, and you just, you see this very stoic look on Drax's face, like very, very little going on, but she's kind of giving you that insight into like how he's really feeling and that he misses his family. He's, torn up that he doesn't have his wife and his daughter um and she kind of conveys that but you just throughout the movie everyone kind of deals with whatever their emotional problems are like they're all broken like you said and they all express themselves and they try to deal with it like again nebula and and gamora (laughs) deal with it in the only way they know how trying to kill one another (laughs) right it's like when Nebula comes in with that ship and just like that, was it North by Northwest moment, I think, <laughs> where she's just like trying to mow down Gamora. And then in the cavern, when Gamora picks up the gun, like this huge ass gun and just is like, <laughs> you know, like, but then saves her sister and they just go through this whole thing because yeah, as children of Thanos, they had to fight each other. And then you realize when they were fighting each other, that every time Nebula lost, like, she she lost a part of her uh, organic body. And just, like, how fucked up that is. And it's, I mean, there's just so much going on that, like, yeah, I'm glad that they're kind of emotionally dealing with this stuff, because when you look at, you know, the, the go-to example of Batman versus Superman, uh, yeah, I don't think Bruce is dealing with things well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the thing is, like, a lot of people talk about a lot of th- a lot of people have mentioned with DC how they like their realism, mm-hmm. and and this is something that 
uh, I like to tackle with exactly this kind of example. It's just like, okay, so you're saying Marvel is unrealistic in, in its delivery of the show that it presents because, you know, there's jokes and sarcasm and ridiculousness. Um, you're uh, clearly missing, like, the serious moments, but okay. But when we talk about emotional gravity in a movie, mm-hmm. um, as you just pointed out, like, Bruce has clearly got some issues. Bruce doesn't work on his issues. Now, notoriously, Batman's been just bad at that. <laughs> but there comes a point where, like, even Alfred, that, but that was that was always in the Batman mythos, that was always the grounding factor for Bruce was Alfred. So whenever Bruce started going and straying off the path and, like, getting closer to that darkness... Albert was all. Uh, Alfred was always Albert. there. To, Albert. <laughs> Alfred was always there. Uh, that's the Elseworlds, uh, Alfred. Yeah. Uh, Albert. Uh, but no. So <laughs> Alfred would always be that that ground to go. Bruce, you realize what you're doing is some psychopathic shit that you're considering. Right? Yeah. Like, that's not right. The, the, the Bat family became kind of the the anchor point for Bruce as as he acquired more Robins and more surrogate sons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so, and so that, and that's the thing. It's like, we don't see that in the DC universe so far at all. Like there, you don't feel like these characters are really all that much friends at this point. Like they're just, they're associates. Mm -hmm. They work together. They, they coincide with that. Um, but they also have very differing, um, thoughts and opinions on how, bad guys should be dealt with kind of thing. Um, Are you saying that having a common name shared amongst your mothers doesn't automatically make you best friends? Yeah, a little bit. Oh, okay. I I just wanted to make sure because clearly clearly in this Um, movie, they became besties after they learned that their mommies had the same first name. Right? I mean, maybe that would have been the key. Maybe, maybe, uh, you know, Peter Quill could have gotten over all of his emotional damage with his mom if, you know, uh, all of his friends uh, had the had they, their mothers had the same name as his mom. Yeah, and you know we could have got over that emotional gravity. And oh, it man, just been explosions and darkness and, and <laughs> awesomeness. That's you know not like real life at all. Real, so, yeah. real missed opportunity there, James Gunn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like, like I said, I mean, this movie it touches on so much, um, really, really well and really poignantly, um, as we've talked about the. The soundtrack's phenomenal. Oh my god! Um, I can't okay. rave about the soundtrack enough. Like I really can't because what? I loved the first movie soundtrack, and mm-hmm. I was like, "This is this is the shit my mom grew up listening to, and therefore I grew up listening to." Yep. Um, and so a lot of this kind of music just like hits a very like personal, poignant spot with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, when you open with Brandy, which is just a kick-ass song anyway, like. Uh, we sing it around my house a lot, like with my with my nephew now. It's just kind of like every song you can remember is is getting sung to this kid piecemeal. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's like Brandy. You have the Mister Blue Sky, uh, Fleetwood Mac's "The Chain," which is just such an awesome song to begin with. Um, what was it? Oh God, there were there's so many others. I mean, there there actually seem to be more songs in this movie than I think even in the first one. Uh, is what it felt like because I don't know. It's like every kind of set piece, there was a song that could kind of go with it, which I'm not complaining about. I'm just saying there just there was more songs. Yeah, for sure. Like, um, I don't so know. I'm grabbing the whole track list here. There yes, we go. It is. It's huge. 
Yeah, yeah, but you can get on Spotify right now. Yay. But if you're like a Google Play fan, mm-hmm. um, it's still not up on Google Play, which is making me angry. Son of a bitch. <laughs> but there's smart people out there who got the track list for all the songs in the movie mm-hmm. and then made playlists that they shared in community. So I just pull up the playlist and I there play we go. That. Yeah, because I'm, I'm trying to remember what song was playing when the 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 ship of death sequence basically happens because it's it's interesting the level of violence they can actually get away with in this movie because Yondu essentially kills everybody on the Ravager ship <laughs> with his yeah. arrow and they're playing like some jaunty little music or whatever while it's happening but it's just like you just see the bodies falling and you're going wow is this acceptable <laughs> apparently it is right <laughs> Like again, not complaining, just pointing out that you know the the amount of times they said shit, and then the level of violence actually happening in this movie is kind of like, okay, kids are watching this, right? Okay, cool. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, well, and I mean, the in, in the soundtrack does like uh, well, and I love like one of the one of my favorite little cameos in there was David Hasselhoff. Oh my god, uh, it's so, so good. good. Like, so good. such a well set up cameo as well. I mean, it's it w- felt similar to me, like how um, I don't know if you've ever watched the movie Meet the Robinsons. Yeah. Okay. So Love like when they bring up uh, Tom Selleck, uh, and they <laughs> it's like, what does your dad look like, Tom Selleck? And they use his photo, like a whole old Magnum PI photo, to to do that. But then at the end, the older character is Tom Selleck, like he's playing the <laughs> the older version of the main character. So. Right. So this felt like one of those, again, perfectly set up cameos when he just appears when Ego is reforming himself. <laughs> yeah, no, so, I mean, the soundtrack is set, I mean, Cat Stevens, mm-hmm. uh, Parliament, yep. Cheap Trick, George Harrison, oh, that's uh, right. yeah, yeah. Sam Cooke, like, I mean, there's just, like, these are all artists that people who know and love music would recognize immediately. Yeah, and um, even if you didn't know who so, the artists were, like, if the song starts playing, you probably know what it is. Yeah, like, if you're these young millennials who don't know what this is, uh, listen to this, it's real music, mm-hmm. um, not whatever, you know, pop garbage is, you know, playing on the radio all the time these days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry if I sound like an old man, I know I'm 32, and I, you know, maybe should be listening to that pop garbage, but man, I just prefer good music. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true, it's true. Uh, no, it's a great soundtrack, and I yeah. Even at the end, when you're staying around for the credit sequence, the, the I think the final song actually has David Hasselhoff on it singing. It does. Yeah, it does. I picked it up immediately. Like I started hearing it, and I was like, "That's the Hoff. <laughs> That's the Hoff singing. That's the Hoff." <laughs> <laughs> well, and what I love most about David Hasselhoff is he has embraced the ridiculousness that he is like he just rolls with it and like it works yep no he's one of those like rare stars that actually gets the joke and is like totally down to play (laughs) so or he really needs the money either one Six of one half doesn't. Sure, why not? Um, there was gonna. What would I want to talk about? There was like one more thing I wanted to really mention. Oh, um, so when Peter and Ego are fighting. Uh, I absolutely adore the fact that even though he's got godlike powers now, he still turns into Pac-Man. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It was so it was good. So great watching watching Ego form into like a bigger rock version of himself, and then Peter's like doing kind of the same thing, but it's all these yellow rocks, and you're like Pac-Man. <laughs> well, it's so great because it, it 
like it tied back to his earlier line when like he learns like he has this power to create things mm-hmm. and like he's super excited like a kid like would be and he's just stoked about it he's like he's like like i can make anything he's like yeah anything you want like it might take time and some practice but yeah you can make anything you want <laughs> he's just like like i i'm gonna make a giant pac-man <laughs> statue like somewhere out there and like just i just want you to know like i'm gonna make some messed up shit like, I'm gonna make <laughs> i so love that much I love that line, by the way. It's probably my favorite line. I was like, yeah, no, I think that would be the normal response so many of us would have. If we had, if we had the power to just create anything we want, like, mm-hmm. we would experiment, and it would be some messed up shit. Yeah, this is like, how far can I go with this? Oh, it turns out too far. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there was that, and um, so how did you feel about the... Um, the I mean the romance basically between Peter and Gamora in this movie because I for me uh, I kind of like that they address it but they don't completely like at the end it's like oh we're totally together and in love kind of thing yeah well and I think they addressed it in such an interesting way um, I there's one scene I apparently missed and I've seen like shots of it. And I know I missed it because I'm like, I don't remember that. I must have gotten up to pee. Because mm. <laughs> I was like, I, I must have not seen that. A common occurrence. Uh, and it's, and it, well, it's the scene where they're like dancing. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's so interesting because you see, like, there's an earlier moment in the movie that uh, anybody who even didn't see it saw in the previews where uh, Drax and Peter are having this conversation and he's very clearly, like, into Gamora. And everybody else knows it, too. And Drax is just like, you know, I... You know, I know you like her, but, uh, you know, some some people, like, you you like to dance. Some people don't. Mm. And you need to find someone who likes to dance like you do, because you're an idiot. This <laughs> <laughs> is like, oh, okay. Like, thank uh, he's you? like, gee, thanks for the helpful advice I didn't ask for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, so, and so, like, later, they have that moment. And it's clear that, like, Gamora will dance, but because she is such like a damaged individual being in touch with like her own emotional side and like caring and being close to somebody is kind of hard for her because it's not something she's ever really known or had in her life. Um, So I think that they address that very well with like Peter and her, like not making it a big focus. Like a lot of movies do where it's like here, we're going to just shove their smooching faces in your face as much as we can (laughs) and make it romantic. Like, they have like a, a, a subtle moment. It's it's adorable. It's it, it, and it is what it is. And then yeah, it's just kind of assumed. It's like, well, clearly they're a thing. Like it's yeah. just a different relationship that isn't a very typical romantic relationship. Yeah, it isn't. It isn't explicit. Like, I, and I I feel like that's also a deliberate choice on on James Gunn's part because. I mean, you could clearly go with the romantic subplot and make that a big part of the movie, but I think that there was so much more going on, and I think it also is is a it's just another way of showing like how connected that they all are. They're family, you know, in in that in that Vin Diesel kind of Fast and Furious way. Um, but the you know, giving you that movie where it's not all like, oh, let's just really address this romance like head on. It's like no, let's. They can kind of talk about it because, yeah, they they kind of refer to it as that unspoken thing. Um, But it's not such a big deal that it railroads the entire movie. It's kind of a thing 
that Peter addresses, Gamora doesn't really want to talk about it, but then by the end it's kind of like, oh yeah, it's an unspoken thing. Like, we know that they're going to move forward from there in some way, but we're, you know, it's not completely all out there like, oh yeah, we're so much in love and kissy kissy boom boom boom, you know. And I kind of like that, you know, that it it wasn't the the focus, it didn't, and when they did talk about it, it didn't pull away from the story either. Like, it, it, it still made sense in that, I don't know, it's it's something I can appreciate because in a lot of superhero movies, the, the, the woman, the female character, is just kind of there to be the romantic interest. And, right. and in this movie, Gamora is, in some sense, the romantic interest for Peter, but she's also dealing with her own shit. Like, her story is much more, you know, uh, revolving around her and Nebula, which makes more sense and is more interesting in a lot of ways. So I'm glad that they went that way instead of being like, oh, okay, well, let's just really focus on Peter and Gamora's relationship. Like, no, you don't need to. Like, we kind of, we get where that's kind of going. And Yeah, well, well, and I was going to say, they even kind of do that a little bit with Drax. And, like, there's this subtle moment where it feels, it almost to a viewer would feel like they were trying to build, like, some sort of, like, romantic thing between Drax and uh, Mantis. And it ends up very much not being that. Like, it, mm-hmm. it, and it's so odd because it's like the comic relief of like, she, like he, for whatever reason feels like, you know, she's coming on to him in some sort of way or whatever. And he's like, he's just like, but you're so ugly. Oh. And, and like, I'm not attracted. <laughs> it's, just, it's this really awkward moment where you're like, what? Mm-hmm. And it all comes after that moment where, like, we we never see Drax convey his emotions beyond, like, his warrior rage kind of past that. Like, you don't see an emotional response as far as tears because his people just aren't like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see that moment where Mantis, like, conveys that being empathic to, like, feeling his pain and knowing his pain. Um, and then, again, there's that moment where it feels, like, to the viewer, it feels, like, very intimate. And then it's broken up immediately by him just being like, it's a good thing you're so ugly. Yeah. <laughs> and she's just like, uh, is that a bad thing? And he's like, no, it's it's great because it means, you know, like nobody's ever going to bother you. <laughs> and that's a good thing because you're beautiful inside, um, you know, kind of thing. And even that moment, like at the end where he's just like, I didn't mean it when you were ugly. I think you're beautiful. And then there's like pause on the inside. Yes. <laughs> it's just like, oh my God. They just had to, they had to go for it again one more time. <laughs> right. Uh, and, it, and it is. It's so good. Like, I'm, I'm glad, because that's the biggest problem, like, I had with the Thor franchise for Thor 1 and even Thor 2 is, like, they had this weird romance thing that was just so shoehorned in there. Like, it didn't feel natural. Mm-hmm. It felt very kind of forced. Um, and there was definitely the room for that to happen between both the first Guardians and this movie. And James Gunn, again, is a director, and I'm not sure who wrote it, but whoever wrote this did a good job of... I think, just, he, I think yeah. he also wrote it, too. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, they just, they made it, he made it so subtle. Mm-hmm. Like, again, not, not imposing, not interrupting, not uh, something that just kind of jolts us or anything like that. It's just, it's there, it's organic, it's whatever, and we moved on. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, the last thing we should talk about is probably the, the ending in, in the sense that, you know, poor Yondu, um, 
sacrifices himself because he, you know, it kind of felt like that was the way it was going to go anyway. I mean, especially when you're talking about parental figures in a movie that's owned by Disney. Um, (laughs) And and I feel sorry for Peter in that sense because he basically loses not only his biological father, but also his, you know, surrogate father in the span of, you know, a few minutes. Um, But uh, Yondu's sacrifice, and we, we get that sense from the beginning because when he meets up with Sylvester Stallone and uh, apparently his former gang of, of uh, Ravagers that he used to go around with, which that was the other um, teaser. The other sting was, because uh, uh, we see in this funeral session, uh, we see a whole bunch of different Ravagers show up, and they they do a Ravager funeral, which at one point Yondu didn't believe he would get because of he was shunned by the other Ravagers uh, for dealing with children. And so we get to see uh, Sylvester Stallone, and then we see Ving Rhames, um, and then we see Michelle Yeoh <laughs> playing these other captains uh, who are there to honor Yondu. And then in this, that stinger, we see that they're getting together, like getting the band back together to go do some shit. <laughs> so, right. But, but uh, how did you feel about the ending, I guess? Well, I thought, I thought so I mean, I thought the ending was, was really good. I mean, I, I like Michael as Yondu. Um, I'm, I'm generally kind of a fan of his, um, I liked him in the walking dead, even though he played like the a worst. character that was just kind of a big piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> but the Michael is well. so good at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He did it really well. Um, I've seen him in a couple of other things just here and there. Um, so Yondu just felt really perfect for him. Like he, he breathed so much life into the character. Um, and, and just, I, I think he, he created that poignance of of knowing and accepting like what he was mm-hmm. um, and why he was that way. I mean, it's shown in like in, you know when he talks to to, to Rocket because Rocket's very much through this movie. He's very conflicted because he kind of just pushes people away, mm-hmm. and it's just a self defense mechanism for him because he's always been kind of an outcast, and so he he pushes even people he loves away and there's that poignant moment where Yondu tells him he's just like he's just like you know like you keep you keep pulling the shit where you know like you don't care and all that and he goes but but you do and and it makes it hard for you because you continuously push the people you love away from you mm-hmm. and he's just like what do you know about that and he goes I know everything about that because I am you mm-hmm. I'm everything that you are. And and so there's even like a, you know that relation moment for for Rocket where he has somebody who truly understands how he feels in so many ways. So it's not even just like Peter's loss. Like it's a big loss for Rocket even when it happens. Yeah. Um, Cuz now he's back to like nobody understands me. <laughs> well, and, and it's, um, it's it's just it's a really pretty moment though when yeah, when he's kind of talking about Yondu and he's he's he starts talking about himself. And Peter's like, because him and Peter have been clashing, you know, since the beginning of the movie and everything. And, uh, and Peter just kind of, you know, being like, you know, kind of forgiving him in that, that moment where it's just like, no, 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 like, you're like, you're still part of this family kind of thing. It feels like something was cut from there. Like there would have, there should have been more to Peter and Rocket, but you mean, it is what it is and it's, it's perfectly fine. But, but yeah, like, you know, having Rocket have that moment of, of just being like, no, Yondu and I are the same. And then when he has to give him those, uh, what the, um, the, the rocket pack and the, uh, the shield device, basically, he's only got like, you know, one of each for him. He knows what's going to happen. And he just gets that moment where it's like, he, 
he realizes what's about to happen. And and we talk about Vin Diesel, but Bradley Cooper does a really, really good job playing Rocket as well. Yeah, which is always surprising to me because, like, in general, I'm not usually the biggest Bradley Cooper fan. Mm-hmm. But, like, even after the first Guardians, I was just like, I can't believe that's Bradley Cooper. Right. I can't believe he has this kind of depth. <laughs> <laughs> what I is think- happening? I think I have a better appreciation for Bradley Cooper then, um, because, yeah, no, I mean, depending on the movie, obviously, you're going to either like Bradley Cooper or you're going to think he's a giant douchebag, um, but, uh, no, he, he manages to put a lot of depth into, to Rocket without actually being there on the set, like, he's just emotionally there, and you, again, you feel for Rocket and what he's lost, um, in, in losing Yondu as well, so it's just kind of like... We're just hitting everything right now. It's like every punch yeah. in the gut you can possibly get is happening right now. Yeah. I did like the Easter egg of, like, the, the other, like, Ravager leaders and stuff, like, getting together because they are, like, an alternative version of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the end. So I thought that was really cool. Um, and, and, and the cast of people that they got to play those leaders was phenomenal. Oh my um, God, so good. I was able to understand Sylvester Stallone, and that was shocking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it, no, and I, I thought it was just very touching the fact that because of the sacrifice Yondu made is ultimately what redeemed him in their eyes. Like, the, and, and, and he he got the appropriate like Ravager send off. Mm-hmm. I especially like the end where. Because of the closeness he felt to his captain, um, you know, his first mate mm-hmm, basically tries to become, like, he's trying to become, like, the new Yondu. So <laughs> oh he, he has the fin, and he's trying, he's trying to learn how to use the arrow. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so good. Like, I was, like, I'm excited for, like, where we're going to see these characters grow and evolve uh, between, um, you know, the Infinity War and Guardians 3. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, these are the ones that I'm, I I don't know, in terms of the entire Marvel, like, franchise, like, I'm more excited for the Guardians movies than any of them, because, I mean, first of all, they've had the same director uh, the whole time, and it's clear that, you know, James Gunn's vision is what drives a lot of this stuff. Not only do we, I mean, not just in the writing, but in the visual style, like, again, like, we've we've talked about kind of, um, you know, roundabout is like, it's a visually beautiful and colorful movie. I mean, there's, I think every color is, is represented on the spectrum in terms of the, what, um, Ego's planet looks like. And then even just visual effects, like at the end with all the fireworks basically going off, like it's, it's just a gorgeous yet visually stunning, colorful movie. Definitely. Yeah. So it's just like, I want more of that. I like I like this particular version, like where this part of the MCU is going. Like the other ones, you know, they're figuring it out too. I mean, I think in terms of the little franchises, Captain America is the only other one with like kind of a solid idea of what it's doing. Because uh, yeah, Thor. This is what director number three. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. we're we're done with Iron Man movies unless you count Spider Man Homecoming as an Iron Man movie too. I mean it's kind of an Iron Man movie. I'm legitimately excited for this Spider Man because god damn it, I I need a better Spider Man. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. It looks like all they needed was Marvel to come in and be like, Yeah, no, these other ones, not so much. This guy, right here. Him. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, and, and that's the kicker is like, I mean, I've heard I've heard a couple of rumors out there that like Sony's just like, well, we made a two movie contract deal for Spider Man, so mm-hmm. uh, but we may discontinue after the second movie, after the second Spider Man movie, which will come somewhere either it's either in between. Uh, the Infinity War movies, or it'll be after the second Infinity War movie. I'm not entirely positive. But I was just like, why? Because you guys are jealous that you think that this movie is going to do so much better than it ever did under just your mantle? Yeah. Because you guys made an agreement? Like, come on. Like, this, this stunt of packing up your toys to go home because you're upset that you did a shit job. <laughs> it's just not, it's not worth it for your, for your fan base. Like, shit, you're still making money. Who cares? Yeah. You just want to go up to them and be like, hey, do you guys, like, not like money because <laughs> like I work a Joe job and I love money. Yeah. <laughs> how can you not love money? How do you in not understand? Yeah. It's like, how do you not understand? Like this only benefits you in the long run guys. Right. Uh, uh. I, I mean, I am excited about Ragnarok. I'm more excited from what I have seen in a preview for Ragnarok than I ever was seeing previews for Thor or, um, Thor two, whatever they called it. Oh, yeah. The Dark World or something like that. or The Dark Letdown. <laughs> um, <laughs> so true. <laughs> uh, so I'm definitely excited for those. Um, I mean, we will get to see Doctor Strange in that. Uh, he is making some version of an appearance, mm-hmm. uh, from what I've heard. So I was like, all right, cool. Gotta get our magic people, gotta get our space people, gotta get our regular people. Like, just, just everybody. <laughs> yeah, all this universe building. All of this universe building. Yeah. At the very least, they... I mean, that's the thing. Marvel Marvel put the time in. They put the time in, and now we're getting the absolute insanity that will become the Infinity War, so... Well, and the brilliance that's in all of it is, like, Infinity War isn't the end of the Marvel franchise, as far as I know. Like, that that's the big build-up, but they're going to continue making, like, Marvel movies even after the Infinity War. Because mm-hmm. Infinity War in the Marvel franchise, it's one of... Yeah. The major events that happens, but there's a lot of them. And I think they're just going to shave it down because it's like now they know they have all these characters. You have, uh, what, six Guardians now? Mm-hmm. Um, you have the Avengers, which is probably breaking into what's essentially in the comics, like the Avengers East Coast and the Avengers West Coast. <laughs> probably. Um, so you have, like, I don't know, eight characters there. Like they have a lot of people that are going to be on screen between both of both parts of this uh, huge event that's going to happen in a movie format. But what we do know is that people are going to die. Yeah, they're going to kill off some characters in the Infinity War, and so uh, effectively, I think that's how they're just going to like kind of like move forward. Is like, okay, we have a shit ton of people. We're going to axe, like, half of them. Yep. And then we're just going to start making some new movies that will slowly replace them. And we'll build up, and then we'll just axe them again. Like, yep. we're just going to continue this process. Well, because a lot of people think that this is going to be Chris Evans' last go as uh, Captain America. Because he only has, like, what, a seven, seven or eight picture deal? Um, yeah. and And because they had also what signed Sebastian Stan, who plays uh, Bucky, they had signed him for, like, nine pictures. So who knows how many of that includes, like, you know, cameos or, you know, whatever. But the a lot of people are thinking that Cap's going to die and that Bucky's going to take over as Captain America. Or you could have Sam Wilson take over, because he did it as well in the comics. So yeah. it's possible. I mean, I think that's the thing, is that 
with Marvel, we're kind of just on board for wherever they want to go. Like, they've made significant changes, like, here and there to, I guess, what you would call the quote-unquote canon of these characters as we see them in the comics. But it feels like, you know, for the most part, a lot of the changes that they've made to the characters in the movie universe have, at the very least, been streamlined and make sense in terms of where they're headed, you know? Right. Well, and the changes that they've made feel... I mean, they feel organic. Like, mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't feel, like, really um, awkward and forced, like, I don't know, certain DC movies. What? Um, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so, I mean, they, they've made those changes in a good way. And so, uh, I mean, I, I know fans, like, uber fans, of course, are, you know, oh, they changed this and it destroys everything about this character. It's yeah. just like... I'll always have the same argument forever and always with those people as somebody who was a big fan of like being like the source content in you know anything Batman, and I was and eventually where I've come to is just like sometimes change is good. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes change not very good. Yeah. Not very good at all. Um, I don't think Marvel's done a bad job of it at all. Mm-hmm. I, I think everything that they've done. Um, has made it so a broader spectrum of an audience who's not into the comics is able to easily follow everything that's happening. It feels natural. They still gain an attachment to these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, they can relate to these characters. Um, and that's something that, um, in a whole separate cast, we could go on about forever, that Basically. <laughs> I don't think DC's done well enough at all. Like they, they haven't done a good job of making organic changes that make that keep these characters relatable. Yeah. So. No, that, I mean, yeah, that is an entirely different podcast, which we'll probably... Done, keep doing whatever you're doing. For sure. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm happy with it. Yep. Um, okay, so I, I think we've covered everything, but James, is there anything that we have not talked about that you would like to mention before we go? Um, no. Okay. If you haven't seen this movie, go see this movie. Yes. Now that we've ruined everything about this movie for you. But yeah. not really, you'll still like it, so yeah. go see the movie. Exactly. Like, also, Kurt Russell is, is really awesome in this movie, too, so... He is! He's super awesome, and, and just, in general, kind of an awesome guy. Like, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever been unhappy about anything Kurt Russell's made. There you go. Right there. Um, but yeah, yeah. So like James said, this is an amazing movie or it's, it's just as like, I'm, I'm kind of on the same page as you. It's not better or worse than the first one. It's just the same. And and I'm perfectly fine with that. It did not have to exceed many expectations. It just had to be good. And it was so, um, but, uh, as we, as we head out then James, uh, anything you want to promote or let people know where you can be found should they wish to find you? Yeah, so uh, I've started uh, the process of getting things in work for uh, my own site, uh, romanontherocks.com. Mm-hmm. Um, so people uh, can definitely go there. I have one thing posted, just a little blurb saying, yes, things are coming. <laughs> um, some stuff has kind of been slow in the making. I've got a, a friend of mine who is doing some sound editing for me, and it's taking longer than I expected it to. So. Um, once I get that though, I've got a number of podcasts I'll start releasing each week and everything. I'm trying to record things like way ahead of time. So I just have like a library of shit that I can kind of put out. Mm -hmm. Um, but other than that, uh, Twitter, uh, at Roman on the rocks as well. Um, I don't post a ton on there, but, uh, occasionally, um, of course, um, I would also like to support scotch tape. Um, scotch tape is very important. Mm -hmm. I think we should all carry it. It's very true. It's very true. I mean, you never know. 
just I uh, yeah. Oh my god, I love that whole bit too. <laughs> There's just so many like good little like uh it's okay, that this is just gonna make the podcast longer, but you know, take what James is, say, is saying to heart, always have scotch tape, and also when you watch the movie you'll know what you're talking about. Um but on behalf of that girl with the curls and the still going maniacal geek that's just taking a bit of a hiatus in terms of the writing right now. But, uh, yeah, you can find me at darling underscore Sammy, um, S-A-M-M-Y, as well as I did make a Twitter page or a Twitter account for that girl with the curls, but, uh, I need to really get into actually, like, dividing between the two accounts because I'm just not as good at that as I would like to be, but, you know, whatever. I have a life and I'm living, so... <laughs> so it, I'm gonna try and get it up and running. If not, you at least know where I am, but, uh... You know, James, thanks for coming on the show again. It's always good to talk to you about movies and our shared misery over the DCEU at this point. Yeah! You'll probably be back for Wonder Woman, as as far as I'm concerned. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's going to be good. Or bad. We don't know. <laughs> Hopefully not three hours of just anger. I know. <laughs> we'll, we'll try to get better at that. Probably not. We won't. Uh, but anyway, James, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, as always, good night, everybody. Night. She hears them say, Brandy, you're a fine girl. You're a fine girl.